what I would urge any mother who may be listening to this, who may be going through something similar, who's feeling lost and alone, all these kind of extraordinary feelings that you feel very guilty about as someone who's going through postnatal, is that actually it can be as simple as picking up a piece of clay, a needle and thread, a crayon. It doesn't fix you, but it can help massage away these feelings that can be so painful. Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years, and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations, and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by a truly remarkable guest. Florence St. George is not only a talented potter, but is also the author of the brilliant book, The Potter's Way, which is an inspirational story about the therapeutic powers of pottery. Florence navigated her way through the depths of postnatal depression after she discovered the power of art and self-expression. Her story is a reminder that even in the darkest of times, creativity can serve as a guiding light towards healing and self-discovery. Florence's experience reflect the intricate relationship between passion and mental well-being, and her story is an inspiration for all those who seek healing through the beauty of their passions. So we're going to focus on your experience with postnatal depression, mm. but I'd like to ask you whether you had any inkling that something like that was going to happen to you before it did. Did you ever suffer with anxiety or depression prior to having children? So it kind of hit me out of the blue. Postnatal depression is a funny one because um, you read the baby books, you get excited. I'd had a kind of relatively happy and easy pregnancy with my first one. I have two children. I have Iris, who's nine, and Jimmy, who's now almost seven. And it was pretty full on when it happened. And I couldn't really describe or explain what it felt like. It's only now, in hindsight, that I can really pinpoint the moment, which was in hospital, I had planned initially a home birth with the NHS, which was lovely. I'd had a midwife came to the house regularly, and but that didn't work because she was back to back. So I was in a lot of pain. And then we got to hospital and they put the epidural in wrong twice because it got to that point where I needed an epidural, having planned a sort of relatively kind of natural birth. So already there was a lot of disappointment. And then the epidural went in wrong And then they wanted to do a C-section, but I really, really said, can we just give it a little bit longer, a little bit longer? And finally she made it out, but it was exhausting. So Henry went home that night and I was put on a ward with eight other women, some of them who were clearly not going through a particularly nice time themselves. They were sort of crying on the ward. And there I was with this kind of perfect little thing. And I woke up the next day, well, not even woke up. There was very little sleep that night because obviously I was so excited. There was this beautiful baby and I immediately felt the warmth and love. And so that was good. It's not, you know, I've had a lot of people who have postnatal who struggle to bond in those first moments. I definitely bonded. 
but I felt deliriously high and it's difficult to explain. It was a chemical shift, a chemical imbalance, and I didn't really tell anyone. So three days in, suddenly, I think there was a, a plane had crashed in the Ukraine. And we lived under the Heathrow flight path because I was living with my parents at the time still. And I was absolutely convinced that these aeroplanes were going to fall and crash on me. And I didn't really tell anyone about these feelings. And I laugh about it now, but they were so, they were real. I felt like the exhaust fumes, I didn't really want to go out. The exhaust fumes from cars were really toxic for her, I believed. I was like, why am I putting this perfect little child into the world when the world is so dark? And that's not necessarily my outlook. So we decided as a family that it was time for me to kind of get checked out because I was not okay. So weirdly, I went to my gynecologist and he did some tests. But at the same time, he suggested I went and saw a psychiatrist. And so it's kind of chicken or the egg because psychiatrist put me onto Prozac immediately. But then two weeks later, we found out that I had Hashimoto's disease. Uh, so my thyroid levels were, were very low. So I was put onto thyroxine. But I wonder in hindsight, if I'd been given a month to just try thyroxine and a slightly less gluten in my diet or things like that, I wonder if I could have helped it a little bit. But unfortunately, when you've got a tiny baby mm-hmm. in your hands, you don't have the privilege of time. So on I went to Prozac. And if I'm honest, it really, really worked for me. There's lots of feelings and thoughts around Prozac. But if it's used to sort of help a moment in time, and then if you're given the right tools to be able to come off it, that's when it's a really successful drug, in my opinion. Because mm. I was on it for uh, two years in total. But after about 18 months, I suddenly felt like I was feeling again. And I was scared of those feelings. Hmm. And now I know that if I lean into those feelings and work understanding those kind of dark feelings that I might have and talking through them, then I'm able to face life and face the problems. But Prozac is a great plaster. It is also a good numbing agent. And that is kind of dangerous because essentially we all need to do the work and find out what it is, like you say, the core problems. Hmm. And it is concerning the way you know we don't want to be following America with their kind of over medicated pandemic that they've got so I really kind of urge any any kind of medical association or whatever anyone listening like that that we need to be supporting people to be able to come off these drugs with things like art therapy which is I'm what I'm a huge advocate and believe firmly that through old-fashioned crafts that we can really um help massage away these feelings I couldn't agree more and I think when I've been in treatment the most powerful thing has always been art and crafts how interesting yeah and it's something what was it for you funnily enough I loved working with clay like I've done that a bit but I mean I'm no good at it but again that's part of the I think for me part of my recovery it's like not being a perfectionist it doesn't need to be like one of Lee's beautiful pots for Monica Vinodet it's um and yeah the mess and like getting my hands and I I said I've always loved as a kid I always loved making cards and I've never been like a an artist per se yeah I've never drawn beautifully but I I love putting colors together and textures and fabrics and shapes and it's funny how using your hands and actually and being creative, mm. it just uses that part of your brain that I think so many of us don't give ourselves permission to do. And also, it's interesting 
that, you know, you immediately very sweetly said, you know, it's my beautiful creations or whatever, but it's a bit like a sort of yoga class. If you practice yoga well, you're not comparing yourself to other people. You're in your own body, you're breathing yourself, you're in your core. Same thing in pottery or same thing in craft or art. I'm not da Vinci, you know. Um, I make pretty little pots that I give me so much pleasure and that I feel incredibly proud of. And I see that particularly with my children as well. It's watching them create something that they're proud of and being in the moment with that piece of clay rather than always seeing the end goal, the beautiful thing. It's the sort of, I know it's cliche to say, but it's the process, it's the journey. And that's what gives you so much pleasure. Yeah, it is. And and so many things, it is the process. And it's like that concept that life's a marathon, not a sprint. It's all those things that just give you those moments of joy and those glimmers. Yeah. Someone said to me the other day, it's glimmers, not triggers, which I thought was like a really mm, that's beautiful. lovely thing. Mm. But when you got prescribed the Prozac, were you also having therapy? Did you ever go and see a therapist? Absolutely, yeah. A psychiatrist. And that sort of worked a bit, but you become a bit like, oh, it's fine, I'm taking Prozac. I don't really need to be doing the therapy, which again is totally the wrong mindset. So I'm now off Prozac and I do regular therapy. So I think it's very important for me. I am very lucky to be able to do that regular therapy once a week. So you then moved abroad after having, did you, when did you move abroad after having your first baby or your second? So uh, in between, because my husband uh, lived and worked abroad. So we, we did a bit of in between. COVID made it more permanent living abroad. But I, yeah, I was on Prozac and then pottery sort of came about as a result of being able to be in this period of nothingness, I suppose. Uh, they call it the, the fertile void and gestalt therapy, I think. I'm not a psychiatrist or a, I, I haven't studied psychology, but I did experience something quite beautiful, which was being able to be in this space of nothingness, not worrying about where I was going. I was incredibly fortunate that I didn't have to work. So I've always been quite independent and I've really enjoyed that. And I think that was one of the hardest things actually about becoming a mother is giving up so many things that you had done before. Um, And I think that was definitely part of my postnatal depression story was that I was definitely grieving my old self and not grieving in the kind of traditional sense. It was grieving my 20-year-old carefree state. And so the lack of independence was difficult, but my, my... husband was incredibly kind and so I didn't have to work for a bit but I missed it even though I was supported by my family I missed work and so one evening I was just watching literally the pottery throwdown and I started going onto Amazon and buying some air dry clay and three weeks later I'd signed up to a local pottery studio and away I went three years later I then applied for pottery at the pottery throwdown myself and I had somehow This hobby had turned into, I suppose, A, a passion and lucky for me, has become a business Mm. to some extent, which is fab. Yeah. Because I've got my independence back. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that you say that, sort of that loss of identity and that sense of purpose, it can really diminish. And I think a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of friends who have become mums and particularly the ones who have been very independent and successful in their careers. Mm. There is suddenly that slight void, I think, that some of them feel and experience and it can definitely spiral into a depression. Mm. And it's trying to fill that void with with something or getting yourself to the stage where you can step out of the void. I mean, I'm curious as to you know, what that feels like. 
the fertile void is yeah. what I yeah. see it as. I look back on it as like such a beautiful time because I was able, it was a sort of springboard. I was just in a period of nothingness. And I think that was what actually Prozac gave me was this kind of, it's probably not a very healthy state really because it's so kind of chemically induced. But I was just able to be sort of totally calm with my thoughts, which I suppose I've never had before. I think um, I've definitely had anxiety creeping throughout my life since my sort of teens, possibly sort of periods of depression, which were probably undiagnosed. And so suddenly here I was in this space of just complete peace. And I, I was very in it then with my daughter and I had such a, I really loved that period of our of our time together with just one child. And, you know, when she was sleeping, I'd make pots in the kitchen and I just really indulged in that, in that space. And um, I feel so kind of lucky that I was able to have that. And I began to heal. And then I had my little boy, Jimmy. And unfortunately, he was really ill when he was born. He got an RSV virus, which obviously now, this was all pre-COVID, now an RSV virus is sort of, uh, it's an like RSV a respiratory virus. It's a respiratory virus which you or I would get, but for Jimmy, he was tiny. And so he got something called a pulmonary hemorrhage. So his lungs started bleeding. So he was put into a induced coma. And I was actually on Prozac at the time when all that was happening. So, you know, in hindsight, I wonder if I was able to cope with it in, in the way that I did because I was sort of encouraged by that. But I sort of got through that somehow. That was one of the toughest things I probably ever had to go through. But we did it. And he's pretty healthy now. But it's extraordinary when you've gone through those kind of events like that, if you've, if you've ever had a sort of little bit of trauma or you can't help but keep seeing those images kind of keep coming back in your head of, you know, this little tiny perfect baby of a child lying there with all sorts of kind of tubes coming in and out and getting doctor's calls at three in the morning saying that he's not okay. You know, all of that. So... I have to work really, really hard at not letting those kind of images come back into my head. And I do that with a lot of pottery by my side and a bit of therapy by my side. Mm. And the two and the combination of that. And also just, you know, kind of I have a healthy, happy child now. But I'm naturally probably not a pessimist, but I'm naturally I, I sort of a warrior. So I have to work really hard at kind of leaning into the kind of dark feelings and exploring why they're making me feel that but equally trying to see the the best in in my days hurt to healing has partnered with brown advisory to bring you this podcast brown advisory a global investment management firm is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world a big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. I'm curious as to what therapy involves. So when you started the therapy, so you saw a psychiatrist and then yeah. started with a therapist. Yeah. What does therapy for postnatal depression involve? I mean, is it a specific, do you focus no. on the negative feelings and the well, thoughts? Well, there's, no, there's no sort of uh, support group or anything like that. No. It's you have to be, that's the hard thing is you have to have good family support. And that's what's so bloody hard is for, I'm thinking about the single mum, you know, who's got two kids and, and she's about to have another and she's on her own, you know, what support are they getting? I had the support of my family and by through pottery, I suddenly had this new village. So a lot of my friends, 
weren't having children. I was 27 when I had my first. And at the time that was quite young. And so none of my friends were doing it. And so suddenly they were off kind of having fun and kind of living their 20-year-old kind of lives. And I suddenly nappies and waking up every two hours in the night was my reality. And so we just didn't have much in common anymore. And then slowly by having this pottery community, I created a whole new village. And I think that sense of um, having a village in life is so important to support you. So with regards to kind of therapy, there was very little handholding. You know, it was through hard work, kind of investigating mm. that I managed to kind of get myself better. But yeah, no, there wasn't a sort of plan or a path. No, and it's interesting that because I think, you know, people who aren't as fortunate to find something or don't have that creative outlet, it's can be a real challenge to refine that sense of yeah, purpose and that structure. Really give is. your your day's structure and something to get out of bed for and something to give you that enthusiasm and for the light to go back on. Which is I suppose why I wrote my book, The Potter's Way, because I realized how lucky I was and this all came about during lockdown when everyone was kind of feeling so anxious about being stuck indoors and I realized how lucky I was I had a ball of clay and we were indoors but I had turned an old laundry room into a studio so I had a wheel and I was kind of very happy in my own company with a ball of clay making stuff and I realized that actually you don't need a studio necessarily even though this was a very very humble kind of laundry space the reason why it was a laundry room was because it's helpful to have um the plugged in electrics for a kiln for a for a, it's the same as a washing machine but I realized that actually all you need is a bag of air dry clay which costs 15 quid on Amazon and so what I would urge any mother who may be listening to this who may be going through something similar who's feeling lost and alone all these kind of extraordinary feelings that you feel very guilty about as someone who's going through postnatal, is that actually it can be as simple as picking up a piece of clay, a needle and thread, a crayon. It doesn't fix you, but it can help, like I said before, massage away these feelings that can be so painful. Mm. And it is, it's baby steps. It's like if you just baby manage steps. like five minutes one day, yeah. if it's just touching the clay, if it's just buying it, if it's just taking out the crayons. Yeah, or Play-Doh, by the way, doing it with yeah. your children. The joy is that you can do it with your kids. And how long did the intense wave of depression last? Because you've, you had your second baby, but when did you say you felt yourself coming out of it? Was that before you had your second child? Um, no, so I was um, on Prozac. I chatted about it with a therapist about whether or not I should come off the Prozac or stay on it. And we all agreed as a family that it would be a good idea to stay on, which was a big decision, but it was the correct decision. And then it was about a year later that I came off that after my second child. But were you still experiencing the depression? Would you say you were still experiencing no, the Prozac symptoms? Didn't. Prozac completely quashed the symptoms. Yes, it really did. So you and mentally, when by the time you had your second baby, you were feeling... Like, I remember okay. saying to someone, you could run me over with a bus and I'd bounce back up, which <laughs> saying now is extraordinary because I'm obviously off Prozac. I go through feelings of highs, feelings of lows, but as a general rule, I work really, really hard on a daily basis to keep my emotions level. Mm. Um, but obviously it's not always realistic, particularly as a mum and you're waking up at six o'clock every morning. But I, I work really hard and I'd say kind of 80% of the time I'm, I'm doing a good job. But... When I was on Prozac, I was incredibly level. It was very chemically induced. 
And I don't want this conversation to be like a sort of PR uh, session for Prozac because I really, it worked for me because I was able to come off it. Yeah, and I don't think you're, by any means, anyone would think that listening to you because it, it served a purpose and it was a tool, it was a temporary tool. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting here as someone who had a very, very different experience on yeah. it. So, it's, you know, you have a multitude of experiences on any kind of drug, whether it's an SSRI, an SNRI, an yeah. antipsychotic. And, and it's great that it worked for you. How did you find the process of coming off it then after having your second baby? Were you scared that the depression was going to return? I was very scared the depression was going to return and bits of it did. Definitely. But like I said, I lent into those feelings. I investigated those feelings and I worked really hard. So I do things like, you know, I make sure that I exercise every day. Luckily, I really believe that I had pottery holding my hand. I listen to podcasts like this. There's a wonderful one called Therapy Works. Just to know that other people are going through something similar to you, I think is incredibly helpful. Mm. And that's why I think support groups are brilliant. And that's why I think AA works. And and I wish that there were more groups like AA that were as kind of accessible because they really, really, really do work. To know that someone else is going through something similar to you mm. um, when you're having a shit time is huge. Or someone, you know, the idea that you could have a sponsor, a PND sponsor postnatal would just be incredible. Because mums are brilliant, other, you know, grannies or whatever. The grannies are brilliant, but, you know, they often share their own experiences. And it's just nice sometimes to know that experiences don't always have to be passed on. And I think it's a generational thing where we've learned to talk a lot more about our feelings. And so I think, yes. you know, hopefully in two generations time, it will be something that's just a very normalised thing to talk about. But actually at the moment, talking to our mums or grandmothers, it's still slightly foreign to them. I mean, yeah. they might have experienced a bit of the down feelings but if you start saying oh well I was she like you know paranoid about planes falling out of the sky they might suddenly look at you and and think it's like uh, you know, yes it's the awareness isn't it and mm. I think like you said I think that's a very powerful thing it's like there aren't enough support groups for mm. people who are going through the more niche yeah. as it were sort of mental health issues or those that society views as being a bit more niche totally we're also born in a completely different I mean, it's every, the world's moving, as we all know, so quickly. Our parents were post-war or second-generation post-war babies, probably. Their kind of experiences are so different to what we've got now, which is kind of overload of information. Everything's quick. Everything, you know, my, my concentration has completely been stolen. I work really hard on a daily basis to get my concentration and my focus back. But, you know, my iPhone is literally stealing my concentration away from me. And, you know... For me, having to teach my children, it's a minefield with what one should focus on, how we teach. But certainly looking back to them, yeah, it was very different. I mean, my mum was at, you know, a convent. I then went to the same school as her, but she she went to a convent. Her mother died when she was very young, and so she was brought up by the nuns. And then I was sent to the same school, and it was no longer a convent, and it was sort of 90s boarding school. And there was no more pastoral care, which I think the nuns had provided, weirdly. You know, we all have these ideas of what that would look like, but actually they provided lots of love and care. And when I was at the same school, that love and care was absolutely gone. And so I was surrounded by other 12 to 14-year-old girls with some seriously, you know, looking back on it, some really problematic mental health issues, which just weren't looked after mm. at all. And today, I hope, would be, and I think it really would be, I think we're all working really hard with that, with the pastoral care at schools. But I think that that would be flagged. Not in, It wasn't in, in the 90s. 
Yeah, completely. I agree. Yeah. I know when I when my mum first went to a GP to say, like, well, I think I've got a daughter who's got really bad OCD. She just turned around and said, oh, what's OCD? Mm. And I think, you know, we're from a similar generation and I think it, it just wasn't something that was spoken about. And, mm. and it's great that we're having these conversations now because I think hopefully it will help lots of people. But I think mental health is a rising pandemic and mm. it's sadly affecting more and more people. And as you allude to your iPhone, I think that's got a lot to answer for because mm. people see so much of everyone else. There's a sense of comparison goes on to overdrive and everyone's always thinking they need to be better, they need to do more, they need to... And it's actually, as you so rightly say, with pottery, it's being still, it's being with your feelings, it's sitting with that discomfort, that icky, uh, God, I feel horrible today, but not trying to fix it and not trying to run away from it and, and actually really feeling it because mm. that's what's going to get us better and pottery is something that it just it has got that cathartic connotation attached to it and so yeah how do you make sure that you are able to do your pottery still and I know that it's you've gone through waves of being quite commercialized doing your partnership with mm. Monica Vinader and like having your factory it was in Portugal yeah no all of that is kind of really interesting and it's that sort of how to remain creative whilst wanting something to be a business and I got really overexcited about three years ago when we were all coming out of the of the COVID, or maybe it was just sort of in the middle of the COVID stuff. And homeware was the kind of in. And I was like, great, I've been doing pottery for such a long time. I can create an empire. And lovely Monica Vinader, who's a jewellery designer, who was kind of holding my hand and actually I now design for her. But suddenly I was like, God, I can do this. I can... And so suddenly it was about... PRing, it was about brand management, it was about kind of trying to get sales figures, it was about producing in Portugal. And over the last two years, I've been sort of trying to do that as well as making my own sculpture. And so I was spread very, very thin. And so over the last three months, we've been moving house and country. And so I've really kind of been lucky enough to take a pause, to breathe, to realize that actually trying to create a kind of pottery empire is not why I started pottery in the first place. I started pottery as therapy. It was never with an end goal. It was about the process. And then suddenly people wanted to buy what I made at the end. And that felt good. And suddenly I was kind of addicted to that feeling. And like I was saying, you know, that that feeling of having independence, of, of making money, you know, it feels incredibly empowering. And I really enjoy that feeling. I wanted to sort of build on that, but it ran away with me. And so this summer I've really pulled back, having written the book, I felt like I was an octopus. I was sort of juggling so many plates. There was Portugal, there was my wheel, there was hand building, there was, I make sculpture for private clients. And the, it was just a lot. And so I've pulled back from the manufacturing in big scale and big numbers. And it feels like such relief. And it feels much more honest to who I am and what my kind of story is about. Yeah, well, congratulations. I think it's, yeah, just going through, you moving from abroad back here. I mm. mean, it's with two kids and with a business. It's incredible. How did you find the process of writing the book? Really cathartic, really helpful, always with the end goal that if I can help one other woman or man who might be going through postnatal, because men get postnatal depression too, or anyone with depression, or if I could help one person, then it'd be worth it. And I did, <laughs> because I've had the most brilliant response from the book and, you know, messages saying, you know, I'm going through something similar. How do I start? And that's the reason why I wrote the book. 
Um, and I'm really excited because now I'm going to be setting up a studio where I can teach again. It's very difficult as a creative or an artist talking about business. The two, are they mutually exclusive? You know, can you sort of monetize from, from your art and your sculpture? And I think, you know, if you use the sort of portals that nowadays are so kind of available, you really can, you know. And so that's my goal is to go back to making really beautiful sculpture and teaching. Do you think another book? Or do you think you feel like that's sort of now done and rested? I never say never, but that was, it was a beautiful experience. I'd probably, if I wrote a book about, I'd write, write about other potters. Mm. There are some incredible modern contemporary potters who are making really beautiful things and I'd really like to showcase what they do. How are you feeling mentally now? Good question. I have a sort of history of immune problems. So I had shingles when I was little. Then I had Hashimoto's. I had Bell's palsy where half the side of my face went paralyzed for three months when I was 13 or something. And then I got something called labyrinthitis. And in hindsight, they were all totally related. So I'm very aware of gut health. And it's kind of creeping into my life. And as it is for lots of us, I know it's sort of quite a buzzword at the moment. But I'm conscious that the more I look after my gut the happier I am. Uh, I'm not gluten-free or anything like that, but it's just eating the right things. And that makes me a lot happier. You're as happy as your unhappiest child. So currently today, my two children skipped school and are really happy. And so <laughs> it really makes a big difference to my day. So right now in this space, in this room, I feel pretty, pretty great. And you found the move back here, so all okay transition is is the I mean mm. I don't know if you know the um, psychotherapist Julia Samuel yeah. but her byline is pain is the agent of change I think it's really helpful that and change is genuinely for all of us the hardest thing that we go through on a daily basis and if you can learn to kind of not resist change and sink into it and be aware that all of us are going to go through pain or grief all of us are going to grieve, you know, we're all going to experience having losing a parent. It's, it's an inevitability. And so to be aware of knowing that that pain is going to be around, leaning into it, quoting Edith Egger, you know, not being a prisoner of my own, my own mind, which I can sometimes be a prisoner of my own mind. So just um, being open-minded helps me. Yeah, and I mean, it's that, your Julia Samuel quote reminds me of, the saying that you know pain is pain but pain plus resistance is suffering and we, oh, so good. we all experience we as you say we all experience pain and it's knowing that you're not alone in experiencing the pain and hopefully by having conversations like this we encourage people to know that pain isn't something to run away from because mm. it's it actually makes you stronger and it makes you more empathetic empathetic we mm. wouldn't be able to relate on a deeper level to people if we didn't experience pain and totally. open up about it i used to be terrified of talking about grief about other people's grief or if they'd gone through something sad, I'd feel it deeply and it would scare me. It wasn't a feeling it in a kind of helpful way. It was just like a fear. Whereas I now kind of, I, I have less fear about grief in all its colours, which has taken a lot of hard work to get to do that. And what advice would you have if someone came to you now and said, I've got horrible postnatal depression, what should I do? I'd give them a massive hug. And want to tell them that everything's okay and it's going to be absolutely fine. And But the reality is, is that it's really painful and it's going to be painful for a bit. And 
if you can't find the support of your family, hopefully you would get the support of your family or husband. If you can't get the support of them, obviously go and see a doctor, lean on the NHS and whatever kind of plan that they come up with, your family, your village, the NHS, try and work hard yourself. And, um, oh, it's such a tricky one. It's very delicate. Every situation, every person is different. But it's it's a very hard question to answer, actually, because I want to just tell that person that you're going to be absolutely fine, you're going to be okay. But it is bloody painful, and that's okay. And what's the most helpful thing that people around you can do? Not to belittle their feelings, not to be like, sleep when the baby's sleeping. It's like, I don't want to fucking sleep when the baby's sleeping. I've got a shitload of stuff to do. It's like, when the baby's sleeping, I want to be doing stuff for me, you know? And when people say... Oh, don't worry, it's a phase. Oh, it's like, yeah, but I'm going through it right now. I would say to your friends, to your f- the family of someone going through something similar, to hug them, support them, and to seek help. It's just an honour to have you on, so thank you so much for being oh. so open and honest, and thank you for the book and your, all your creativity that you've put into the world, because it's inspiring so many people, and I can't wait to come and do one of your workshops. Oh, watch this space. Give me three months and it'll be brand spanking and open to everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram, at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.